Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California, recording this from my latest home office. But now I'm about to move yet again. Long story, but... I will be relocating to yet another home office on Monday, and uh, hopefully that will give you the same optics on YouTube uh, that I've been getting here that I've actually kind of liked. But before I begin, a couple things. I want to, first of all, say happy Thanksgiving to everybody. I didn't send out an email like everybody else on that, you know, like a big happy Thanksgiving one, because frankly... I mean, there's so many emails that I figured, you know what, I'm not going to clutter their boxes with more email. They get enough email from me already. But just know that I'm extraordinarily thankful for your listenership, your membership, so to speak, into this community that that is turned into an extraordinary thing, the Wealth Formula community. And, you know, I, I really am so thankful for for many of you I've gotten to know and have become friends with. So thank you for that. You know, today's show is about how to be successful using psychology, using, you know, stepping outside of yourself and thinking how others think and and that kind of thing. And this is just an incredibly important thing in life. And Dave Liu has written an entire book on this. And I got a chance to interview Dave and, you know, he's just got so much useful stuff to say. I mean, You know, one of the things that I have realized throughout my years is that, you know, when you're trying to figure out how to become more successful in any part of life, don't try to recreate the wheel. I mean, that is a very inefficient way to do it. Success stories aren't all the same by any means, but they often rhyme, right? Just like history. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? I mean, but success stories are the same way. You know, my first two successful businesses were nothing more than ripping off, uh, you know, other people's successful business ideas with a twist of my own, with a few variables different, you know, rip it off and, and pivot. That's really what it is, a rip and pivot. You know, I knew the concepts that they were doing already worked because they had successful businesses, right? These were big, successful businesses, and it was working in these other markets. And all I had to do was bring it to my market, which at the time was Chicago. And in my mind, at least, there was no reason why these businesses wouldn't work. And, well, I was right. And I have to say that if I have to credit myself on anything, you know, 
uh, it's it's out there for the taking, ripping off uh, great business models and doing it yourself. But you do have to have a little bit of the coronary artery width to actually do that, right? Because if you're going to spend a bunch of capital doing things and that kind of thing. But anyway, the bottom line is my my point is that I didn't make it up, right? I just I, I looked at successful people, successful businesses, and I just ripped it off and did it myself. Now. You see, I, I live in a place in Montecito here that's surrounded by entrepreneurs like me. And what I discovered was that, you know, it wasn't just me. In fact, you know, I know a lot of entrepreneurs here and, and it, it seems like everybody's a business owner where I live pretty much. It seems like it at least. But what I found is that this concept of, uh, you know, essentially, turning former employment into a learning situation and then into a profitable business that looks just like that employment situation, but being the boss, that whole thing, that's actually most successful entrepreneurs that I know. It's not the minority. It's just how it seems to evolve. And guess what? So now when someone asks me how to become an entrepreneur, how to find a successful business, that kind of thing, well, I always tell them the same thing. You see, I say, never see a job as a paycheck. Take a bunch of jobs that you're really interested in the business. And if you're interested in money, which, you know, if you're listening to this show, you probably are. Look at some very profitable businesses and you take that chance to not only get a bunch of skill sets, you know, that you don't have, but also to potentially learn an entire business that you can take for yourself and set up shop. You know, I have an example, another example of somebody who did something very similar in Montecito here, and that was in the energy arbitrage, uh, working for some guy doing energy arbitrage. And man, that was a great thing to learn and turn around. The guy's making millions of bucks afterwards. And you know how that happened? It was, well, it was just kind of dumb luck. And for me, it was dumb luck. No one told me to get a job and to, you know, find a successful business model and then learn from it and turn it into your own business. I just got lucky and discovered this path the way many others did by accident, right? But if someone did give me this advice early in life, I might have done things a little differently because I might have actually approached jobs and life and things differently of course, I'd have to know I was an entrepreneur too, which I didn't until, you know, after I'd gone to medical school. But, you know, after I finished medical school, I went into a neurosurgery residency. I left neurosurgery and, you know, at that point was thinking about what I wanted to do. Now, if somebody had told me that I maybe you're not interested in medicine, maybe you should go, hey, you know, maybe maybe you should take a job in private equity and see how that works. And you learn some different things. You always come back to medicine. Who knows? Maybe I would have done that. Maybe I would have approached life a little differently. At any rate, no regrets. I'm just saying, you know, the larger point I'm I'm making here is that finding successful people, especially those that are willing to share their experience, it's gold. And sometimes you hear them say things that are so simple, but fundamentally change the trajectory of your life. Now, not everybody knows those people personally. It's difficult, but books and podcasts make, you know, access to these people pretty easy these days. I mean, sure, you can't ask them questions, but there's plenty of life-changing content out there. I've talked for myself many times about the paradigm shift I had after reading Robert Kiyosaki's Cash Flow Quadrant, an experience that I call taking the purple pill. And of course, you know, I mean, I didn't just, you know, read that book. 
I didn't listen to that one. I, I listen to most books now, but I didn't just read that book and say, well, gosh, you know, he told me to buy some real estate. I'm going to do that. It was a real change in paradigm. And, you know, sometimes when you hear smart people, you can get those kinds of tremendous benefits. Now, Dave Liu is one of those guys I think is really worth listening to. He's a highly successful guy who's made it, you know, big as both an employee on Wall Street and as an investor. And in this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, I got a chance to interview Dave And it's jam-packed filled, this interview, with nuggets on how to succeed at your job as an entrepreneur or maybe even phase into entrepreneurship. And then ultimately, uh, great ideas towards the end of the interview on investing in today's, uh, you know, best opportunities. Anyway, we will hear from Dave after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Dave Liu. Dave is an advisor, author, entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. He is a 30-year veteran from Wall Street and Silicon Valley. He's raised over $15 billion for hundreds of companies, created multiple startups, and had multiple billion-dollar exits. And he's also the author of The Way of the Wall Street Warrior, Conquer the Corporate Game Using Tips, Tricks, and Smart Cuts, which is uh, released in November. Dave, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, there's so much we could talk about, given your background, but, um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the topics in the book. You know, one of the things that you you talk about in there is the idea of mastering human psychology to help entrepreneurs and investors. And I'm, you know, I think this is a, an area that I think is really vastly underrated. I mean, I know for myself as a as an investor that so much about the success I have has been based psychology based, whether it's, you know, my own intuition about, you know, who's involved and that kind of thing, or just, you know, trying to figure out what kind of opportunity you can get. But I'm I'm curious. To, can tell us about your experience with with this, uh, and you know about the mastering of human psychology to optimize that. 
Yeah. So, uh, so my, my educational background, uh, was that I started my undergraduate by, by, by studying economics mm-hmm. and, and I also studied engineering. Uh, but, but I, I studied classical economics where, uh, a lot of the theories are, are frankly based upon the idea that people are perfect agents and that they're completely rational and that yeah. we are incented by the same things uh, across the board. And, and the reality is that that's not true. We're all incented by different things. And I've been fascinated by this whole field of behavioral economics and cognitive bias and the intersection with human psychology that ultimately determined over the last couple of decades that people are frankly highly irrational, that they are motivated by different things. And as I started to spend time in my limited free time studying this whole field, um, it really helped me validate some of the things that worked for me in my career as well as help shape my thinking around how to interact in the corporate world. Uh, and what, one, one simple example is that the, uh, the notion of uh, risk aversion is now very well known. Uh, it's very well established that as, as a human uh, species, we uh, you know, hate to lose a lot more than we love to win. And it really explains a lot of different uh, you know, business models, uh, interactions, uh, behaviors of human beings, everything from, you know, why lotteries exist to why we, we spend a lot of money on insurance and frankly, why insurance and insurance companies are some of the best businesses in the world. Uh, why, uh, for many of us, uh, you know, we are, we are really afraid to, uh, make investments when frankly, maybe our balance sheet looks pretty healthy. It's because, you know, losing a dollar for a lot of people is a lot more painful than winning $2. Yeah. Uh, and so I started to really dissect a lot of this. And what I learned from reading all the books uh, in this area was that there's just a ton of research into how the human being can be dissected into multiple cognitive biases, uh, multiple traits and motivations and incentives. But what I identified was there's kind of a gap in the market in that if you know people are risk averse, if you know people have affinity bias, uh, if you know there's recency bias, how do you then use that to advance your career? How do you use that to formulate your investment hypotheses? How do you make that actionable? And so that was a gap that frankly I saw in the market when I started to think about how could I best advise uh, my, my, my sons, people that are looking to advance your career, how do I help them figure out how to realize their full potential? And what I also determined was that a lot of people, in my view, are not able to maximize their career in particular because they don't understand the psychology of human beings. They don't understand that just working hard and delivering value, say, to your boss or to your company is not enough. Because your boss is fundamentally human and fundamentally motivated by not just seeing value in you, but perhaps other things that you're not factoring into. So that was largely the reason why I started to write down all of these different tips and tricks. And if you have a chance to kind of read through my book, the way I, I dish out advice is, is, is actually quite structured. It's essentially, um, I don't personally believe that anyone can walk in, a, in another person's shoes because I think we are essentially uh, an aggregation of all our unique experiences. And so the way that I try to educate people is I tell you what I did. 
I tell you what I did to make an impression uh, with a client, you know, how I think about getting promoted, how I think about negotiating compensation. And I tell you what I did. Then I interview a few other people that are very successful and, and they, they echo what they did and they either did something similar to me or they did something different. And then last but not least, I try to explain in uh, human psychology terms, like why that tactic actually works. What is it about it that I did or people I interviewed, what is it about that tactic that is validated by the fact that human behaviors act irrationally and humans do certain things? So that's kind of how I structured uh, the content in, in my book. And a lot of what I uh, talk about is applicable, not just in, uh, in, a, in an area where, say, you're uh, climbing the corporate ladder, but where you're uh, an entrepreneur and you're trying to yeah. figure out how to raise capital or you're uh, a corporate executive and you're trying to figure out how to sell your company. A lot of the same rules apply. And, and, and that's fundamentally why I decided to write it all down and, and re- record it for, for posterity. So if you're an entrepreneur, just as an example, you know, give us an example of how you can determine, a, you know, say a customer or an investor or an employee's motivation. Yeah. So one of the key ways to determine someone's motivation, and I don't think, frankly, people do this a lot, is by pure observation and testing. So for instance, when when I was a M&A banker, uh, I was an M&A banker for almost 30 years. One of the reasons why people hired me was that I would have u- unique insight into not only generally what companies would do if approached with an opportunity, uh, let's say you, you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to sell your company and you want to know how will Google uh, react versus Microsoft, right? N- not only did I have kind of the basics of like general negotiation tactics, general auction tactics, but I would have uh, unique insight into how specific buyers would react because every every company is, and I'm going to state the obvious, but every company is an aggregation of people and those people are different. And so some companies may react to a certain type of tactic, whereas others won't. And the only way you can really discern that ultimately, what are the motivations of the various companies, which again, are aggregations of a lot of different people with different motivations. The only way you can really discern that is through observation and through testing. And the way you test it is you show them lots of opportunities. You have lots of dialogue. And so, for instance, you might realize that, you know, this big tech company that uh, we're trying to figure out what they're motivated by, they they seem to be really motivated by FOMO or yeah. fear of missing out. And so for them, the way that you kind of get them engaged is you give them a sense, either explicitly or implicitly, that there's a lot of other people looking at this opportunity. Yeah. And yeah. if that tends to be what they're motivated by, then you you start to build incentives into your strategy with them so that you exploit their FOMO. Yeah, There are others that maybe I've been interacting with on prior deals or prior opportunities where I realized, you know what? They as an organization are very confident in their ability to crush anybody else. And so FOMO doesn't really work on them, right? But perhaps they are a very vain organization. Maybe they're motivated by PR and the press release newsworthiness of transactions because that tends to be the type of people who buy their stock. That tends to be the personality of the CEO. And so for them, 
maybe the tactic is more along the lines of, I need to incent them to act by giving them a sense that this is a, a chess beating, you know, cover of the Wall Street Journal type of transaction opportunity. And so to answer your question, coming full circle, the way that you dis- discern what motivates an individual, the way you discern what motivates a company is by a combination of observation. So seeing, observing your prey, if you will, trying to figure out what, what is it that they're really motivated by, and then testing that, testing that hypothesis, ideally with opportunities. And so if it's your boss, right? You have a lot of interaction with your boss and you can kind of figure out pretty quickly, okay, my boss is solely motivated by his or her ability to get promoted. And therefore, what I need to do to make sure that I am successful is I need to do whatever it takes to get my boss promoted. And that's that's what's going to help me in my career. Or you might you might realize through working with them or through coffees and through you know maybe some more casual setting that you know my boss isn't really motivated by money or promotion, but they're really motivated by a desire to you know leave a mark, right? And so maybe my role as a subordinate of theirs is to really help them build legacy, help them build some you know new project within the company that they can put their stamp on and say, look, I built that division or I built that product or I built that service. Um, so a lot of it just comes down to observation, but then testing that observation uh, quickly. You know, it seems to me, I've always found this to be the case, is that, you know, what you're really talking about when you're when you're talking about finding people's motivations is the fundamentals behind marketing, right? It's all marketing, like what drives somebody. And typically uh, what drives somebody is uh, greed, you know, fear of missing out, you know, and then entertainment. Uh, You know, there's there's these things that drive people. And fundamentally in marketing, that's kind of what we do. I, I mean, I consider myself a little bit of a marketer as well. And so really, in many ways, the best skill set that a person can have for success, whether it's an entrepreneur as an employee or whatever, is the ability to market themselves, right? I mean, and essentially use psychology to do that no matter what. I mean, whether it's in business or, you know, entrepreneurship, raising capital, even, even relationships, personal relationships, it's all fundamentally, that's probably the most important skill in terms of getting what you want out of life. Do you think that's true? I, I do, but maybe maybe let, let me add another layer or n- another level, level of dimensionality to it. So I, I'm generally not a big fan of frameworks because I think frameworks are uh, essentially ways that we make sense of the world and they tend to devolve to the lowest common denominator. You know, when you think about frameworks, a lot of them are part of books that people write in order to sell as many books as possible. And therefore, for it to ultimately be helpful to as many people as possible, you have to generalize them. But the reality is we're all very different. Uh, I like to joke, for instance, that I have two siblings, two brothers. And um, if you looked at us on paper, we look the same, right? We have the same parents. we're, we're, We're three Asian American male right? Grew up in Asia, you know, born in the U S grew up in Asia, but lived in the United States. Right. And what traditional textbook frameworks would tell you is that you manage the three of us exactly the same. You market to us exactly the same. And I'll tell you, that's completely wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, yeah. we were not the three, the three of us are motivated by completely different things. Right. But again, like frameworks will tell you that 
you should approach this the same way. Now, that being said, there is a framework that I think is really helpful when you are thinking about your career. And I think this can also apply if you're an entrepreneur starting a company. And this, this framework is the Japanese framework, the Ikigai framework. And if you're familiar at all with it, it really is about answering four key questions when you're determining what you want to invest your life in, what you want to uh, start a company in. And it starts with, you know, the, the, the very uh, cliche but helpful question of like, uh, what are you passionate about? Like, what do you care about? Right. That's number one. Number two is what are you good at? Like if you're if you're being somewhat objective, what can you be good or great at? Number three is what does society value? And the number four is what does, is society willing to pay for? And so if you think of these four as kind of concentric circles and you draw like a Venn diagram where they overlap is really the kernel of a lucrative career. It's the kernel of a lucrative company. Because if you're passionate about something, you're good at it, society values it, and society will pay for it, that ends up being a really interesting quadrant. That ends up being an area where you can, uh, you'll go the extra mile because yeah. you're, you love it, right? Yeah. You're good at it. So you're, you're one of the people in the world that people go, like, yeah, I, I, if I could work with anybody, I'm going to work with Dave because he's actually good at this thing or his yeah. company's good at it. Right. Society values it. Society actually cares. And last but not least, society will actually pay for it because there's a lot of things society values. But for whatever reason, society is not paying for it. Right. So I think of that as the, the 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 kernel or the framework that helps an individual think about where do I invest my time career wise? And I, I advise a lot of younger people to to not cut corners and, and not, uh, you know, make, make sacrifices too early, but try to experiment to find that intersection for yourself earlier in your career. Right. Yeah. And so as you think about your career, unless you are a solitary writer in some cabin in the woods, you have to work with people. You have to work with a boss. You might have people reporting to you. Uh, you might be part of a company. That company might have customers. That company might need to raise financing from other people. That company may have partners. And so what I recommend people think about is at any given moment, what is the Ikigai framework for the people around you? Mm-hmm. What What is the Ikigai framework for your boss? What is it for the people that work for you? What is it for your investors? What is it for your suppliers? What is it for um, anyone that is related to your overall mission? And Unfortunately, the the questions or the answers to those questions change over time. Right. And I think that that's actually where you can get caught if you're not paying attention to it. Because for, perhaps, you know, when you're when you're early in your career in that framework, what you care most about is getting paid. Right. So you're like, look, I don't really care uh, if I'm that passionate about it, but I'm good at it. And uh, society pays a lot of money for it. <laughs> so we're going to do that. Right. But maybe over time, as you salt away more of the fruits of your labor, you may say, you know what, money isn't as important to me, but more passion and purpose is a lot more important. And so I think figuring that out for the people around you is, is really critical. And then marketing is really the tool to help you achieve your magic quadrant mm-hmm. and and get everybody else to help you uh, realize that quadrant. Yeah. So yeah. it's a little bit of more of a, a framework philosophical yeah. addition to what you were just saying. Right. And, and so, you know, that brings me to, I think, a topic that I, I find myself talking to a lot of, you know, we have a, 
in this show, there's a lot of physicians and dentists and, you know, a lot of people who are also kind of burned out, uh, just working long hours and starting to tinker with the idea of doing something on their own, being an entrepreneur. And, you know, I'm often um, kind of confronted with the question of like, should I do this? And should I do something different? And, you know, I spent so much time in my life working on, you know, this and going to school for something and I want to do something different. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned you talked to a lot of young people about this, but I think as we, especially as we continue to live longer and longer, it sure seems like probably more people should consider making pivots later in their life uh, into things that um, they're more interested in. How do you, how do you approach somebody who asks you, you know, Hey Dave, I'm, you know, I've been a doctor for you know 20 years and burned out and I've got this idea. Should I do it? So what, what, how do you evaluate that situation? Yeah. So I, I tell them what I did because, because effectively I exited stage right uh, from wall street in my early forties. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you kind of go back to that Ikigai framework that I talked about, for me, the 20s and 30s were squarely focused on salting away as much capital as possible so that when I got to my 40s and 50s, I could essentially do whatever I want. Right. And what I, what I learned over time was that the things that motivated me when I was younger no longer motivated me when I was older, which is very similar to, I think, what a lot of your friends are asking you, yeah. particularly the doctors that are burnt out. Bur- yeah. Burnout is... is a classic, you know, sign of the fact that your your ikigai framework is out of sync, yeah. right? Yeah. Like either either you're most of the time is that you're just not as passionate about it anymore. But maybe it's also that society doesn't value as much mm-hmm. what you're doing, mm-hmm. and and that 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 robs you of something at your core, right? Yeah. It's like, yep. well, you know, this isn't necessarily something that it may have started off as a very noble profession, but maybe now you know people don't really view it as noble, and therefore it reduces my motivation. And so what I tell people when they, when they come to me with these questions of burnout and, you know, can I, should I do something else? I say, look, I think the first thing you need to think about is what is your personal cost of capital? What mm-hmm. minimum nest egg do you need so that you don't have to go back to you, to the, to the days when you were in your twenties and thirties and slaving away and worrying about every paycheck? Right. Because right. what I find is that constraints are good, but if you are at risk of devolving into a situation where you're you're worried about uh, having enough food on the table, right? Then then you may actually be incented into the wrong kind of behavior. Yep. And and uh, an uh, uh, extreme example is when good people do bad things, mm-hmm. when good people do unethical things or illegal things in order to get ahead. Right. And so what I tell people is, look, if you want to make a transition change in your career, I think the first thing you need to think about is what is the minimum nest egg you need? And therefore, what is the minimum cost of capital that you have in order to continue your lifestyle at a level you're comfortable with? And for some people, in order to make the jump, they actually have to uh, downscale their lifestyle in order to make sure that they don't uh, end up in a situation where they're burning through their savings, they're worried about putting food on the table, uh, but they're able to have at least the degrees of freedom to explore something else. And so first and foremost, I tell people, make sure that you do no harm, <laughs> you know, using the medical brand, do no harm, 
figure out what your financial situation is, particularly if you have a family, right? Your cost of capital is higher and, and make sure that that's covered. Then I think that, you know, life's really short, right? If you're burnt out and you don't feel that you, you have meaning, I think you can do one of two things. One is you could start to do this new thing as a side hustle, right? And I'm not sure that that is completely practical if you're a doctor or a dentist, but perhaps, you know, weekends or shifting to a little bit more of a part-time partnership role is, is an option, but you can start as a side hustle if you're not completely confident that this thing could turn into something big or just go all in. And if you've done the homework, like I said earlier, where you've uh, made sure that you've salted away you know, enough money, you, you made sure that whatever returns you can get off your portfolio or your nest egg are sufficient to cover your cost of capital, then I recommend people go all in. Because what I find in entrepreneurship is that rarely are you successful unless you give it your all (laughs) because the mortality rate is so high. And if it's, if it's, if it's an idea worth pursuing, the odds are quite high that either you have competition already, or you will have competition uh, nipping at your heels pretty quickly. And therefore the the way you win is, is by speed. The way you win is by focus. And so if you're interested in doing something else, I recommend people just go all in. And that, that's frankly what I did when I decided to just leave uh, Wall Street, leave investment banking, and then become an entrepreneur. Yeah, you know, you have to actually make, it has to be clean, and you have to have a mindset of making that switch. You know, when I left actually practicing medicine, I have a private practice, and um, I, you know, it, it converted it into a, a business that runs without me now. But my manager at the time did not believe I was going to stop practicing. And I literally wrote a letter of resignation to my own manager. Like, I mean, I'm, I own the practice and put a date on it. After this date, I'm not practicing. So I just declared it to her. I declared it to myself. And it was done. And I stuck to it. And uh, I mean, it's a scary thing, right? I mean, it's like you definitely have, once you actually get there and you do it, um, especially if you succeed, it's it's got great rewards often as well. So pivoting to your, you know, you, you've, you've got this other side where you've been an investor um, and you've been very successful there. Uh, you've invested in a number of businesses. So when you think about your, your successes and what's made them successful, uh, you know, what do successful investors consider before funding a company or a project or, or really anything? Or, you know, is there, is there a formula you use? Is there, or is it like, you know, people first that, that the usual mantra, that kind of thing, or is there something different? So my investing style is actually quite different. And I have actually not run into anybody that does exactly what I do. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have a lot of, uh, angel investors out there that I think, frankly, spray and pray. So they invest in a lot of different companies. They put small amount of money in lots of different companies, and they effectively just become a name on a long cap table, a long list of investors. And they don't really actively get involved in the company, and the company doesn't really actively use them. Uh, they, they see them as a check, and then maybe they'll give them an update from time to time but ultimately they're not really part of the company. And what, what I learned or what I decided for myself is I'm not really chasing yield. I'm not really in the business of being an angel investor, but I enjoy the, the role that I played as a banker. I enjoyed the role of, of being someone that the, the company could call on when they have a challenge. 
um, one of the things that I am, I'm a movie buff and I love uh, one of my favorite films of all time is, is the Godfather oh, and yeah. in the Godfather, um, the right-hand man of the Godfather is Tom Hagen, uh-huh. which is a character played by Robert the Duvall. Consigliere, right? He was a, exactly, the consigliere. And I consider myself like the consigliere to founders. And that's the kind of role that I love to play. I love to be the person that the founder or CEO calls when they have financing questions, when they are approached by a buyer, when they are challenged with some HR issue, when they're facing issues with their board or their investors, or frankly, just somebody, a friend they can call on like a therapist late at night and saying, look, I got all these issues. Like, you know, I just need somebody to talk to that I trust. And so as, as I describe that role, obviously I can't play that role for like 30 companies or 40 sure, companies, sure. Um, nor, nor do I want, do I want to. So what I, what I've done is I've generally focused on a very small number of companies, uh-huh. companies where generally I have known the founder or CEO for a really long time. Some of the things that I'm involved with where I'm a shareholder, I've known the founders for 20, 30 years. Mm. I may have been their banker at one point and helped them with their first company or their second company. And what I've learned is that if you get to know people over a long period of time, you end up dissecting from your relationship. You really figure out their ability in two areas. Okay, One is their ability to deal with people. And that's something that, frankly, I think only comes with experience. Both, I think your ability to deal with people, I think, comes more with age. And second, my ability to understand how you deal with people comes with having longevity and knowing you for a long time. And as we've talked about throughout this podcast so far, the ability to deal with people is a superpower that helps you in every facet of starting a company. And what I've, what I've generally found is even if you're not good at dealing with people, those people that are self-aware about that and then hire a number two quickly with someone that has that ability are also people worth backing, are also people worth dealing with. Because even though they may not personally not be able to deal with people well, they recognize that's a huge blind spot of theirs and they fill it quickly. So first and foremost... I try to invest and partner with entrepreneurs that I've known for a long time because I know that they have an ability or recognize the ability to deal with other people is critical to their success. Second, and again, this is something that you can really only observe over some period of time is their overall agility. So what is their ability to flex when the company runs into challenges? What is their ability to pivot when they realize that a product or a service that they've been doing is just not taking, is not finding product market fit? And I think that agility is something that is frankly underrated. You know, we as a, as a society, we get a lot of our information about companies from the media and the media essentially celebrates survivorship bias. Right. They talk about the stories where uh, you know, a company hit a billion dollar valuation as a unicorn, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously they don't talk about the 99% of, of enterprises that fail because those aren't interesting. Yeah. But they also, what they don't talk about so much is the weaving and bobbing of what the company did on its march towards billion dollar, multi-billion dollar success. And what I have found is that a lot of companies rarely, rarely do they start off and end in the same place. Rarely do they say, hey, we're going to build a widget. And then yeah. they're successful seven years later in an IPO because they're they're building that widget they originally 
uh, envision, right. most of the time they're doing something different. Most of the time they're experimenting along the way and then they find something else. So I would say that really understanding the agility of the founders and CEOs, I have found to be a winning strategy. And yeah. so for me, what has worked really well is making very concentrated bets on a handful of companies where I know the entrepreneur, I've gotten to know them pretty well, and I'm able to discern their ability to deal with people, manage people, manage investors, manage customers, and then their overall agility under fire, their agility to flex and weave and bob when the company runs into adversity, which every company runs into at some point in their life. Yeah. So, you know, one one last topic or question for you, and that is, you know, we we are coming, we have lived through a pretty extraordinary period in time with COVID and, you know, and that has uh, accompanied significant shifts in how we work and, you know, Zoom and, you know, all these different technologies. And, and I'm curious, like, is there, from an investor standpoint, what do you think the opportunities uh, to be potentially looking for. What are you looking for right now, post COVID? I mean, what is there anything that seems to be um, that maybe people aren't thinking about that you're looking at as, hey, this is an area that you know post COVID is going to be potentially really exciting. So the simple answer to your question is absolutely. But let me give you a little historical perspective on why I feel that way. So uh, I've been in the tech world for about thirty years. And I've, I've seen a lot. And one of the things that I've seen is that whenever there is a quote unquote platform shift, there's tremendous wealth creation and wealth destruction. Okay. Now to, to make it less of the high level, you know, business school strategy and bring it down to a much more tactical level. What I see is that whenever you see a shift in media consumption and the form factor in which the way people consume that media, that tends to be an opportunity. So when you look at, for instance, going way back, right, the, the birth of the internet, in my view, was a huge change in the way we consume media. For one simple, for one simple reason, it's that, in my view, it unlocked our media viewing hours beyond just the, you know, 6, 6 p.m. to like 10 p.m. at night. It actually unlocked media viewing and shopping and consumption through all hours of the day. Yeah. And so it kind of unlocked all this inventory where, if you recall, in the early days of e-commerce, one of the unusual things that was happening was there was a ton of shopping happening at lunchtime. Yeah. Something that people have never seen before, uh -huh. right? But I give you that as an example of how the birth of the internet obviously created like this brand new opportunity to market to consumers mm -hmm. that we've never seen before. Yeah. Obviously, the next huge shift was the mobile, the mobile web and the birth mm -hmm. of mobile apps and the mobile ecosystem. Again, tremendous uh, creation of wealth and destruction during that period. And you could say that the, the huge beneficiaries of that were Apple and Google, because ultimately with their operating systems, with the Google operating system and the iOS operating system of Apple, they effectively became the tax man for, right. for the yeah. entire mobile yeah. uh, app yeah. ecosystem. Um, now, I think the, the big opportunity is actually this whole area, which is being termed Web3, but it's the birth of decentralized organizations and NFTs and uh, the ability to tie value a little closer to the original creator and to own that data yourself and to create a unique identifier associated with that. Uh, and I think because of that, you're going to see a tremendous amount of, of wealth created. But what we don't know is, will this truly democratize like the ability for creators to own their work? 
and monetize their work? Or will we see the rise of platforms yet again? Will there be a Facebook meta or a Google that will be the tax man, if you will, for the NFT and the crypto and the Web 3.0 economy? Nobody knows. But what I do know is when you see that shift, you will see a lot of opportunity. So what, what I do is I try to think about from an investor standpoint, when are the big platform shifts happening? And then when they do happen, if you're if you're in the business of just generating yield, so you're in the business of chasing yield and just trying to make sure you generate return, th- this is actually an interesting t- point in time where you just invest in everything. <laughs> you, you just say, look, yeah. you know, I, I don't right. have any ability to discern whether yeah. this operator is better than that operator in the NFT world or the DAO world or the crypto world. But what I do know is that a huge platform shift is happening. And there will be winners and there will be losers. But if I overall bet in the rise of this next platform, I will net net do well. And when I look back at the venture capitalists and the angel investors that I know that have done tremendously well, it's when they see these huge platform shifts and they go all in. They put all the chips on the table and they say, look, the birth of the Internet is going to be huge. I'm just going to invest in everything that has a dot com on it. The, bo- the birth of the mobile internet or mobile web and mobile app ecosystem is going to be huge. I'm just going to invest in all of the mobile plays. So Dave, practically speaking, how does, you know, in, in our group, obviously we have predominantly accredited investors. We have, you know, opportunities that maybe your typical retail doesn't, but how does, how do you do that? I mean, in, in how do you invest in everything uh, and get exposure to everything, especially, you know, if you're looking at decentralized uh, companies and stuff like that. You know, how, how do you do that? Well, it's it's not easy, obviously, because uh, there there is still some separation from the good companies from the bad companies. Yeah. But there are uh, a lot of entrepreneurs and venture capital firms that are opening up their opportunities to individual accredited investors. Right. Uh, you can go on platforms like AngelList and mm-hmm. troll various people that have pretty much open. Uh, their platform to anybody that wants to invest. Uh, mm-hmm. You obviously need to be careful and you need to do your due diligence, but that is one avenue to go the mutual fund or the ETF route. Yeah. Um, I'm not necessarily suggesting that that is a great route, but if you're so fixated on like, I need to have an opportunity here, I need to participate yeah. in this next bonanza, that to me is a much better route for someone that's not well-versed in this space than going the route, for, for instance, that I'm going. Because yeah. the route I go is very surgical. It's yeah. very pinpoint. It's like, okay, this entrepreneur I worked with 5, 10, 15 years ago, and they're all in on NFTs. And therefore, I, I believe in this person's ability to exploit the NFT opportunity. If you don't have those relationships or you, or you can't do that kind of due diligence, then I, I do think you if you still want to play in the category, you have to go more of the broad-based route. And the way to get in there is really to look at some of these platforms that are creating uh, venture funds or uh, SPFs or, or special purpose vehicles that are broad-based and are, and are opening their platforms up to multiple investors. But you should be very careful <laughs> with that. Uh, you, yeah. can, you can still choose badly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, great. This has been uh, fascinating stuff, Dave. Uh, the book, again, is The Way of the Wall Street Warrior conquer the corporate game using tips, tricks, and smart cuts. Uh, presumably it is available everywhere in Amazon, et cetera. Um, and the website 
It's uh, lucrative.co, right? Lucrative is an L-I-U-C-R-A-T-I-V-E.co. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. You can also find the book on Amazon. So it's available everywhere, but you can go to Amazon as well. And uh, I'll just say, you know, a couple of quick things about the book. So sure. it's really geared towards people that are looking for just any advantage they can get to scale the corporate ladder. So I really wrote the book more for people that feel underrepresented in the workforce. So Asian Americans, African Americans, women, people that are frankly frustrated with the status quo. And then I pledged hundred percent of the proceeds to charity. So I really did this book as a way for me to give back to the community. Yeah. And so if you like the book, would appreciate obviously a good review on Amazon. Fantastic. Dave, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me and enjoy the talk. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that interview. I think it's really fun for me to talk to very successful guys like Dave Liu. And again, I highly recommend you check out his book. Um, I think it's very broad in terms of, you know, its content and the application of, of, of his strategies. But um, that said, I also want to, once again, wish you a happy Thanksgiving. And that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.